You're listening to the Entrepreneur Podcast from the Western Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship, powered by Ivy. My name is Eric Morris, and I'll be the host for this episode. This week, the Entrepreneur Podcast is featuring one of our fellow podcasts from the larger Western ecosystem. Ivy Academy presents Leadership in Practice, which discusses critical issues in business, unpacks new research, and talks to industry leaders about the latest trends. In this episode of Leadership in Practice, I spoke to Ivy HBA 06 alumni Eric Mickelson, who is the co-founder and managing partner of OXO Management LP, one of Canada's first successful search funds, and the president and chief revenue officer of Stealth Monitoring, Inc., a leading North American video monitoring and security company with over 1,600 employees. Mickelson shares his journey through entrepreneurship, including the detours within his career where he found new avenues for opportunity. You know, back in the early 2000s, when you were graduating, you probably would have held the title as most likely to be an entrepreneur. Um, I'd like to know a couple of things. Why did you grav- gravitate towards entrepreneurship? What was it in your past? And, and what was your venture while you were doing your degree here at Western? Yeah, thanks a lot, Eric. Yeah, I always liked the idea of entrepreneurship. A couple of my first jobs included being a busboy or being a cherry sorter at a local orchard. And my first experience having a boss, I thought, you know what, I'd like to be my own boss one day. Uh, And so that was part of it. Um, My first venture was with a few other Ivy classmates. We started in second year uh, before we went to business school and it was a social media company. The best friend from high school was at Harvard at the time uh, where they had access to Facebook. And so we created, you know, a private community within the Western network, but we went to monetize it right away. So we signed up over 50 advertising clients uh, and we sold advertising, did coupons and really drove revenue to those local businesses. Uh, At the time we were competing mainly against the school newspaper. Uh, Very cool. Hey, so if you think about the early days, maybe what were some of the lessons, you know, getting going in university or, or shortly thereafter uh, that, that you learned? Yeah, listen, when you have your own name on something, uh, it's a little different than the jobs that I'd had uh, in the past, where it was a lot more pressure and a lot more emotional. Yeah, so you hear about entrepreneurship being a, a roller coaster. Um, and so, you know, the highs are high and the lows are low. And when you're convincing a small business at the time to give you, you know, hard-earned money for advertising, you really had felt the pressure to create a return on investment for that business and, and create value. So a couple other things that I learned were the value of partnerships. You know, I had a couple other partners, you know, that I'm still very close with today, 20 years later. Uh, and we kind of divided and conquered. Uh, and then we got other people involved in the business as well. And so uh, just the ability to, to network and get things done through other people and build teams uh, was something that that I learned really early on and certainly made some mistakes while we were doing it. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the value of having a partner is, is so important in a lot of people miss it. It's like you're having a down day, they're an up day, and they're coaching you through it. And the next time they're down and you're coaching them through uh, and keeping each other going and accountable, I think it, it, it's such a great thing. You know, what What were some of your motivations to, to continue down your entrepreneurial journey, uh, you know, from those early days? What, what were the, some of the things that really, I guess, lit a fire under you? Yeah. Um, you know, I really uh, like the ability to control my own destiny um, and take ownership of something as opposed to, uh, you know, being, you know, just a part of it or an advisor. Coming out of business school, I kind of look at at things three buckets. There's a few more, but it's, you know, being an investor, being an advisor, being an operator, um, and being an entrepreneur, you know, is a little bit of all three of those things, but probably more in the operations 
uh, side. And so um, that was very appealing to me. And then the ability to really kind of make an impact um, on other people and, and on the world, you know, I think uh, was was very motivating for me. Yeah, cool. You know, it's funny. A lot of our students today have a social enterprise kind of background and it but they they want to do the same thing you just you just talked about is that you know make a difference on on people and 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 in the world and you know one of my recent alums said you know I want to be an entrepreneur because I do want to make a difference in the world and it and it seems like that's the best way to do it I told everybody a little bit about your career path Eric which is you know kind of all over the place right we went from marketing to finance to real estate to investment uh, to tech. Uh, you've definitely had a pretty unique career path. You know, what advice would you give to others about, you know, thinking through their career, about finding opportunities? And how have you kind of approached that idea of making some of the big changes you've made? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a few things I would say, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do other than I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And the media company that I started in in undergrad, I really felt was successful because it was for students and run by students. And I didn't want to be uh, graduated kind of running the student led business. I probably didn't understand uh, social media would blow up. Uh, and I, I probably could have <laughs> continued with it. But uh, when I was looking at, at what things to do, you know, a lot of my friends told me that I sold my soul when I went into investment banking in New York. They couldn't believe it. Uh, and the process there was really, you know, why don't I try something different that's going to give me a skill set that I don't otherwise have uh, and some credibility and open doors rather than close them. And so um, if you don't know what to do, I think the advice is try to take something where you're going to learn a lot, you're going to add a skill set, and it's going to open new worlds for you, right? And that way you'll be able to uncover different opportunities, which is what I was inevitably able to do. Ideally, you know, maybe make some networks, uh, connections, save some money, gain some credibility. And those are all things that really helped me later on when I took the plunge into being an entrepreneur. Yeah, very cool. Can you maybe talk about one or two of the kind of those transition moments, Eric, maybe, you know, getting into real estate? What, what, what did you see that that took you that direction? And, and then we'll get to stealth in a minute because that's a that's another current and huge thing that you've done. Yeah, the, the real estate one was was kind of obvious a little bit because I was told basically to do it. I was in New York from 2006, 2008, doing leverage finance investment banking. And if anyone's ever seen you know the movie Margin Call, there's kind of this moment where people at the investment banks kind of knew within a few days that the entire market was going to collapse. And so I was literally in the bank, you know, working midnight on a Saturday or something like that. And someone came over and said, I think this is all going to go up in flames. And so I was talking to some much more tenured seasoned people in the office. I go, well, what does that mean for a young guy like me? They said, you know, there's going to be opportunities that come out of this and doing distressed real estate are doing distressed in general, distressed debt investing would uh, would be one of them. And so I, I took that advice very seriously, started talking to people and recruiting for jobs that that would give me that opportunity. And so I made the switch um, to a company in Los Angeles that was focused on just that. So it was a nice way to kind of learn, you know, through the upswing in the leverage finance market, you know, in the mid 2000s, and then learn through the down cycle, you know, on the other side of it. And so I think listening to people that have a lot more experience than you, and looking at kind of the macro trends in the environment, it's always better to be in an industry where the wind is at your back. And uh, that was top of mind for me and is, is I think, paid off. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think it's one of the things that, you know, when I look from afar, I would say has always defined your journey is that, you know, you're always open to opportunity and you're, you're kind of always looking, maybe not actively, but but certainly passively and having those conversations that that would lead you to opportunities. So I think you've done that amazingly well. 
Uh, tell us about stealth monitoring. Uh, you know, what attracted your attention to this particular opportunity? And maybe tell us a little bit about the growth. I mean, from 55 employees to 1,800 employees is amazing growth. Uh, you know, you've really built this business into you know, a world competitor. And so uh, tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, thanks, Eric. So um, I partnered up with a fellow Ivy uh, grad. He was two years ahead of me, HBA 04, Rob Sharon. He was at Stanford Business School at the time and had this concept of what's called a search fund. You raise capital for from a number of high net worth individuals, maybe a few funds, and you go and find a business to acquire and actively, ma actively manage. And then you take a percentage of the upside. And so our, our idea at the time that had been basically none done in Canada was to take that concept uh, into Canada where we'd look for a business to buy, right? And the idea with Canada compared to the US was that, you know, even scaled by GDP uh, or population, you know, it was about 10 times more capital chasing deals in the US. And so kind of the under $10 million, you know, deals uh, you could get for great prices and then you could expand them. And so that was the academic thesis. Uh, and that's exactly what we did. We came to, to Toronto, um, set up shop, and we're looking for a company to, to buy, ideally from someone who is probably in you know, their retirement phase with no transition plan. Instead, we found a fairly young entrepreneur in his mid-30s who had built the business from scratch. Really cool guy with a remote video monitoring company. It was called You See It at the time. And what it is, is using a combination of technology, cameras, sensors, and software to replace your supplement security guards. Uh, and so the idea is you put up cameras in, let's say, a construction site, and then we watch them after hours for a lower price than a guard would cost with the added benefits of recording all the site activities. So did that for a few years, kind of was pretty nerve wracking coming in, having no experience doing that. And I was used to the corporate world and, you know, with just different, different challenges. And at the time I was 25. So I was one of the younger people to have done at the time and really didn't know what I was doing. And so I had to really rely on uh, different people within the business, different investors that we had, ask for advice and just humble myself and, and really learn the business from the ground up. And so I started actually doing sales there, uh, expanded the business to Western Canada at first. And then we bought another company in Dallas a few years later called Stealth Monitoring and rebranded under that name. And so we went from five to 180 and then through acquisition three, you know, about 400. And then we've kind of expanded new verticals and geographies uh, since then. And so, as you said, we have about 1,800 uh, employees now and we're in four countries uh, with some uh, back office in, in Asia. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been one heck of an adventure. Yeah, for sure. And I'm going to come back to lessons learned uh, a little bit along the way here in just a second. But you, your growth has been organic, and it's also been through acquisition as, as you've gone through this. Uh, search funds may be something that are relatively new to a lot of uh, folks in Canada. I know uh, you've been pushing uh, us to, to be more involved in, in the search fund space for a number of years, and, and rightly so. And it's really only been the last couple of years where we've really introduced that to, to our MBAs and, and some of our HBAs in terms of a, an option. And it's becoming more of an option for people people in, in Canada. You know, can you just tell us a little bit more, more detail on what a search fund is and, and how that works? Yeah, absolutely. So I look at it as entrepreneurship through acquisition, where you're building something. So you're raising money from investors, they're giving you some capital to pay yourself a small salary, and then they have a call option when they invest in you. Uh, really a first right of refusal to invest in a deal that you bring them. And so in our case, we bought, you know, we brought them a deal within a few months and the majority of our investors said, oh, this looks pretty good. We're going to fund our pro rata portion uh, into that investment. And then a few of them will stay on your board uh, and, and kind of help advise you uh, on behalf of the entire investor group. And so uh, what's in it for the searcher, which would have been myself and my business partner, is we take a percentage of the upside. So similar to private equity, where you can get, uh, you know, you kind of pay back the principal. And in a search fund, you typically take 20 to 30% 
of the profits, depending on how you do. Right. So fantastic. So, you know, you're probably improving your chance of success. You're grabbing something with sales already in the market. You can kind of assess where you think strengths, weaknesses are and what you can bring to the table. And, and I'm sure that's one of the things that you're looking for. So, you know, it may limit the upside a little bit, but certainly it's less risk. And when you grow like you have, I think the upside is going to take care of itself. Absolutely. Yeah, fantastic. So again, I'm going to go back to that growth because there's there really aren't that many entrepreneurs that have been on that kind of a ride, Eric. And, you know, so what are some of the lessons that you've learned going through, you know, some of the rapid growth uh, at Stealth Monitoring? Absolutely. So a few of them would be um, the importance of picking the right people um, to help you. You know, I was very fortunate to have partnered with an entrepreneur who was very humble and very smart. I kind of knew his limits, but really was a good partner. He's still at the business. When we bought the company originally, um, you know, he said, you know, he was going to be there for a few years and then retire or do something else, you know, because he's still pretty young and, and he's still there. And so having good partnerships is really important. Um, I also found people um, either that I brought into the business or just as mentors and advisors that had done it before. So some of them came through the Ivy network where I kind of reached out and said, Hey, who's built a sales team before, you know, what mistakes did you make uh, earlier in your career? What things do you wish that you knew, you know, now? Uh, so the network, I think, and, and importance of learning from others is huge. I think also at different stages of a business, when you're really small, you know, we were call it 5 million of revenue and we started now we're over, you know, uh, over a hundred, well over a hundred Canadian. You've got to sell whatever you can basically when you're a small business and anyone listening who's a small business owner, I think will relate to that. When you get larger, you have to think about how do I grow more intelligently? And so what are the areas that I want to focus on and what are the areas that I want to say no to? right? Uh, that are less profitable or more complex. Uh, and so having focus is a real key. And as an entrepreneur with ADD, like myself, focus didn't come easy. Fair enough. And it, you know, it really is two different kind of mindsets, right? Because you're trying to find what's going to stick on the wall in that early experimental stage. And as you say, trying and selling anything is a, is a really different mindset than, oh, this is working. How do I scale it? Because now I need process and systems and, you know, execute a million times, right? So I love your answer though, Eric, because I think humility is such an important part of that and the willingness to reach out for help where you know, hey, uh, you know, somebody's been here before and they can probably help me through this. Uh, such great advice. I, I appreciate that a lot. I'm going to go back a little bit to the funding things because I know, you know, just in personal conversations that over the years you've been fun, uh, frustrated with some of the funding opportunities in Canada. You know, you've had uh, quite a bit of time in the States and so you've always kind of compared those two. And so uh, we have been we have been behind. I, I hope we're catching up and I'd like your opinion on that. But what are some of the things that other countries do perhaps better than us? And, and where can we do better as a country in, in helping, you know, entrepreneurs grow? Yeah, uh, Eric, I, I appreciate that question. You know, when we had this thesis of investing in Canadian businesses coming back, we wanted to be 50% Canadian investors and advisors and 50% American. And we got a lot of feedback that we were just too young, didn't have the experience of the gray hair, so to speak, to, uh, to want to back. Um, and meanwhile, we fundraised out of Palo Alto in a few weeks. And so we ended up being uh, well over 80% uh, US. Um, found that it was just a much slower mentality, you know, much less aggressive and willing to take risks. Whereas, you know, particularly in California, but also some of our investors from the East Coast in the US, they had invested in young entrepreneurs, people that only had two, three years of experience that had, you know, the will. Uh, and kind of the grind and the willingness to kind of prove themselves. Um, and so one of my investors said, you know, the pitch to him 
was you're kind of trading experience for horsepower. And that wasn't seen in the Canadian market. Like that. Yeah. It's a lot better. I will say we have a long way to go, but just at Ivy alone, you know, have started, as you know, Eric, uh, we'll work together on the Ivy Angel Day, which has now already raised millions of dollars, you know, into startups uh, coming from Western. Uh, and that's just a, that's just the start. We just started that. And so we have these types of things that have been put in place that have been successful in other geographies uh, like the US that will we'll kind of started to replicate. And the mentality has really started to shift. And you've seen some fairly large ac- exits, you know, coming from Canadian entrepreneurs as well. Uh, I saw one the other day, I think uh, Nix uh, was sold for over 300 million. I think it was the largest exit by a female entrepreneur in Canada to date, which is also really great to see female entrepreneurship and more diversity coming into the Canadian market, which has also been lacking. No, thanks. And, uh, you know, you've been a big part of uh, pushing us here for sure. And I think we've only been doing our, our kind of demo day for a couple of years and we're, you know, upwards of $7 million to, to really early stage ventures, which is, which is great. So thanks. Uh, thanks for your leadership there. Uh, Eric, I'm going to go back a little bit to, you know, again, uh, I hope stealth continues on for many, many years, but I'm, I'm also pretty sure it won't be your last uh, venture, uh, you know, down the road. And so you always keep your, you know, kind of eyesight on the horizon and, and follow trends and, and look outside of kind of the immediate business. And I think it's been something you've done so well over the years. You know, where do you see emerging trends? Where are some of the things that maybe you are, hey, I know you're 100% focused on stealth, but where are some of those things you're, you're seeing opportunities starting to pop up? Yeah, absolutely. I think to my earlier comments about looking at where the wind is at your back uh, is important. I find it to be, you know, easier to be successful in industries or markets that have that just kind of make a lot of sense um, or disruptive technologies. You know, I always think of, of Uber as something where it's like, hey, this was a problem. It was hard to hail a cab or get from A to B. And they just came up with a better solution. You know, it sounds easy. The concept makes sense. Obviously, uh, for those that know the story, it was extremely difficult and continues to be extremely difficult for them to, uh, to execute on. And so I think, you know, large addressable markets that are solving problems that make it easier for people to live um, and have more enjoyable lives or for businesses to operate and service those people. Uh, we have a tendency over time, you know, um, to innovate and then kind of refine what we're doing. So it doesn't kind of go in this this curve that just goes up like this. It, we tend to kind of come up with something new. You know, if that was the engine or electricity uh, or the internet, and more recently cell phones, and then spend a lot of time refining that. We have a lot of new, really exciting things that we've been working on for some time that are really starting to show promise. Uh, and the ones that come to mind would be artificial intelligence, machine learning. We're doing a lot of that. Blockchain. I'll call it blockchain instead of crypto. And then you know, virtual augmented reality and some really cool things going on within those sectors. And so uh, there's biotech and a whole bunch of other really cool stuff coming out. And so I think we're going to see that next the next kind of wave of innovative industries. And I think that's going to be really exciting for for people you know kind of across the world, but particularly those that are interested in pursuing entrepreneurship. Eric, you know. Uh, this is something you've been close to, and, and we've talked about the, fin- uh, the financing side of it. What else do you think business schools could be doing to encourage more entrepreneurship? It's a question from one of our viewers. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people, at least that I've met, they have a perception that entrepreneurship is having to have a brand new, unique idea and going that zero to one. Or I think a lot of people perceive entrepreneurship to only be technology focused, whereas I view entrepreneurship really more as a state of mind. 
you can be an entrepreneur while still working in a large company. Uh, you could be an entrepreneurial investor who's helping, you know, even advise, not even invest in something else that's entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurially based. Uh, or at a large company, you could start something, you know, a club or something social. That's being an entrepreneur. Um, and so I think that's part of it. I think there's different stages um, in life that you can be an entrepreneur. I don't think there's very few, I think, that are, are successful, like Zuckerberg, right out of college. I think a lot of people that I've met have gone into industry, gotten years of experience and really fallen into it. And so always being open to it at whatever stage in life. And then there's all types of industries. You know, I happen to be focused in tech, but I've invested in all types of things from healthcare to real estate um, and otherwise, and uh, to tequila. Uh, and so um, I think understanding what entrepreneurship means to you um, is something that business schools, I think, can do uh, a better job, uh, I think, of, of really kind of teaching and understanding and creating, you know, networking groups, um, you know, after graduation. And there's some some other business schools that uh, that do uh, different things there successfully if it's groups or networking, putting different faculties to, together, um, these types of things. Yeah, for sure. No, great answer. I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different paths to entrepreneurship and uh, an entrepreneurial mindset in particular is great for everybody coming out of university now. And so that's, that's certainly something that we're, we're trying to focus more and more on. I love the shout out to Eric Brass, by the way, that was nice. Um, <laughs> one of the stats I saw just recently, Eric, and it speaks to your point of there's no right one right time to start. Uh, Harvard put something out, I think it was last week, over 50% of their alumni 10 years on have started a business. So, uh, you know, it, it's not right away. Very often that startup comes 10, even 20, 30 years after graduation. Uh, and I don't know the Ivy number on that. I would guess it's not quite 50, but I, but I think we're doing all right. And hopefully we can, we can help move it in that direction. So uh, thanks for that answer. Uh, I've got another great question here. As a successful entrepreneur and leader, you know, you've leaned on your network over the years. Uh, how are you giving back? And, and obviously, you know, through the work with the school, but how are you helping the next generation of entrepreneurs and leaders? And, and what's the best way somebody else might be able to get engaged? I had a lot of help. You know, I, I wasn't afraid to reach out to people for help along the way. Even with my application for Ivy, I, I had a, someone come to my high school and talk about Ivy. It was, it was a cousin of one of my teachers said, hey, this Ivy business school is a great place. Did like a little, a little spiel on Ivy. And I said, hey, I reached out to him and said, hey, can you help me out with my application? He ended up helping me out with my resume when I applied to investment banking as well. And because I got a lot of help, uh, the dean at the time, uh, Mark Vandenbosch, uh, of, uh, or he was the program director of HBA, I remember called me into, my, into his office. I thought I was in trouble. I was like, oh, you want to get that call. And meanwhile, he had heard about the business that I had started in, in while I was there and had some potential clients for me, like me to meet. And I'm like, whoa, not only am I not in trouble, this guy is helping me make money. Awesome. Yeah. Right. That's great. And so um, to pay it forward has always been really important for me. Um, a couple of years out of school, I probably did my first thing where the markets crashed and I got together about 20 uh, fairly recent alum, two to five years out of college. And we did a presentation to the current business school kids uh, and HBA and MBA to say, hey, here's the reality of the market. Here's what you should be thinking about when not everyone's going to get a job in investment banking or consulting. Um, and we'll just do Q&A and, and have that support network. You know, since then, I think it's been important to take interns and, and mentor students and kind of pay it forward. We have groups either informally or formally, you know, uh, are there to help advise. And I think because of all the help that I got from people a lot more experienced and successful than me, and I still continue to do that, 
um, you know, I think it's important now um, to do that with the younger generation, however I can. And then, uh, so that's more on the entrepreneurship side, I think, uh, being involved in, in community and social responsibility of, of whatever is important to you, you know, so nonprofit work. I think as a business leader and just a community leader is something that's important and that, you know, those that have the time uh, and or money um, to, to be able to put into, there's lots of ways to contribute there. And I think that's important. I love this question. So what would you say to someone who's interested in entrepreneurship, but they might be worried about the high risk perception? How do you bounce back from, you know, mistakes or failures? And, and how do you think about risk? Yeah, calculating and managing risk is a real key to kind of anything, but especially to entrepreneurship. It's a fantastic question. You know, I try to measure the upside and downside as much as I can. Like I put as many things in the decision trees as I possibly can from those old management science uh, classes. I'd be delighted to hear you say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one, of my, one of my really good friends and classmates, Nico, is a management professor, management science professor uh, now. So he's, he's drilled it into me. But your ability to think about what the risks were, you know, I'll talk about when I left, um, people thought I was crazy. I was living in Los Angeles getting overpaid for a you know, young 20s person, you know, with a convertible in LA. And I was like, I'm going to move to Canada, you know, back to Toronto, where it's cold, but amazing, but cold, and take, you know, an 80% pay cut um, to, to go and do something. The timing for me was really important, because I had a few years of experience, but I didn't, I wasn't making millions of dollars. I wasn't in a corner office. I didn't have a mortgage with two kids and those commitments. Yeah. And so the way that I thought about my downside was if I work really hard, I raise the money and I can't put it to work or I buy something and I really try hard. Um, when I talked to investors, you know, they said, you know, you're going to make a lot, you're going to learn a ton and you're going to make a lot of great um, contacts. Ideally, we want to make money out of this. But, you know, I talked to a few recruiters and they said, worst case, you know, you kind of go back to private equity, right? You have a good background and you have a bit of a parachute or you try it again, right? Yeah. Um, maybe partner with one of these investors. So the downside and the upside was everything that I've been able to kind of uh, see and, and, and accomplish. And so I felt that it was really weighted um, in my favor at that time. So when I talk about taking risks with people, you know, I have friends who I say, I want to be an entrepreneur, but you know, I have this great job. I'm much more senior at a firm. You know, I don't have really a good support network. You know, I think my husband or my wife would, you know, uh, not be supportive. I'm like, hey, that's fine, right? Maybe. Maybe uh, maybe it's not for you, or maybe you can do something entrepreneurial kind of on the side in your spare time, evenings and weekends, right? And try to get something going a little bit and build up a little bit of that safety net. And then if it really starts taking off, you know, then you can jump into it then. So it's a very personal question, I find, which is different from, from for everyone. And I think um, some people are more or less risk adverse than others. And I think knowing where you lie on that um, and how to minimize your downside in different situations, I think, um, is kind of the way to go. Eric, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, you know, the one one other piece of advice that I've heard and going through the process you did is when you have investors, is just make sure you have open communication all the time uh, with them. Because if you're doing your best and hustling as hard as you can and it, it doesn't work, like they, they're professional investors. They understand that's going to happen. And, and they're much more likely to, to help you on that next next deal if, uh, you know, you were open and uh, all the way through it. So uh, good on you. Uh, I've got a really, uh, another great question here. You know, 
who's the best partner you've you've had? Maybe you don't have to name them, but but more like what were the characteristics of that person that made them such a great partner for you? Yeah, absolutely. I've had some great partners. Um, my first, you know, like I'll I'll skip to the the, the best one. He's my uh, just yeah. I've been with him for twelve years. He's my current business partner and kind of brought me into this. But even my first partner, I'm really close with a guy named Chris uh, Chris Cruz. He's a he's a head guy at a fund called Searchlight in New York and has done exceptionally well as an investor. But we talked a lot about partnership and what you bring to the table uh, early on, and and that was the student company that we had. Um, and we both went to become investment bankers, and he taught me a lot. It really set me up for for Rob Charon, uh, who's my current business partner, and brought me into the search fund world. Um, so it was his idea. He kind of brought me into it, and we we're at the Stanford Business School Library, uh, which was the old library. It was like really, it was the last year before they renovated it, so it was super old and '80s looking. And we spent a couple of days really whiteboarding who, what was important. To, to each person, what our values were, where we saw ourselves in five years, what we wanted to focus on, really tried to get everything out on the table uh, in terms of what a partnership could look like. And, you know, to have each other's backs um, and support each other, but also appreciate the differences, I think is really important. And I'll, I'll just tell a quick story. We were looking at a deal. Uh, we were in the Mars building in Toronto at the time with a few other Ivy alum. Um, and looking at a deal, and we got into some argument. I can't remember about what. We had a disagreement on the deal. And I got, I left in a hissy fit. I was like, you don't know what you're talking about, whatever it was. And he sent me a text message and he said, it was a quote, I think it's from Warren Buffett, but he said, if two business partners always agree, one of them isn't needed. And so I, thought, I came back and gave him a big hug and uh, we went, you know, uh, to, on to the rest of the day. Another thing, uh, a quick one um, that I'll mention on partnership, and I've said this a few times before, is it's, you know, next to uh, uh potentially a marriage. Uh, there's a lot of similarities with a marriage, but people tend to not think about it maybe in the enough or think about all the nuances. And I say, you know, if your friend called you up and said, Hey, I met this great guy or this great girl and they're awesome. And I'm going to get married to them. And I've known them for three weeks. You'd probably say, Hey, that sounds great. Super excited for you. <laughs> three weeks. Like as a good friend, you'd probably tell them like, Whoa, right? Like, have you really thought this through? Meanwhile, I do see people jump into partnerships um, in business ventures, you know, in very short amounts of time without really thinking through, you know, these things. And uh, a lot of our investors, when, when we were fundraising from them the very get-go, they didn't care about my banking experience or you'd done this many deals or they didn't ask any questions about that. Most of it was about the dynamics of us as partners, how long we've known each other, how we work together, those types of things. And, and looking back, you know, 12 years, I understand why. And I've been very fortunate to have a very um, complimentary business partner. We're very hard on each other. From the outside, some people may say, hey, you guys sure you really like each other? No, great, great answer, Eric. Um, somebody would like to know a little bit more about uh, kind of that search when you found UCIT. Uh, you know, were there other companies you looked at ahead of time? You guys, you know, found something pretty quickly. Uh, you know, what was that process like? Absolutely. Uh, well, I had this great plan of finding these proprietary deals. So I, I used to say I like the three Ds, death, divorce, and disease. All great reasons uh, want to sell your otherwise great company. Right. So I kind of look at, why are you selling, you know, why are you selling this great company? And so I was going to go and, you know, network with all these divorce lawyers and, and try to get this inside deal scoop. And, and that just never happened um, because we ended up having uh, 
some you know really well-known private equity funds. We had guys at Torquest and Birchill and others uh, on Cap and Onyx um, that said, hey, we met with them. We knew people there from the Ivy network and classmates and say, we don't do deals that that big. We, um, you know, we, we see them though all the time and you guys seem like good guys, you know, we can, we can give them to you to look at, like tell us the criteria you're looking at that great. Yeah. We're looking at business services, recurring monthly revenue. And so we ended up getting some deal flow, but also a lot of advisor interest from that. It gave us credibility within the Canadian market in particular. And so we had the big accounting firms, all these guys kind of reach out and give us deal flow. And that's how we ultimately founded, uh, found UCA. Uh, another interesting one, tough one. Uh, you know, what would rec- you recommend from your experience uh, for an entrepreneur that has an idea, but maybe it's out of their area of expertise? How would you begin to kind of go down that and work on that business idea? Yeah, probably just off the top of my head, there's probably two ways that you could go. And it's probably a combination, to be honest. It's you know, I think you need to be somewhat of an expert, uh, either yourself or through your network. And so if you really like an industry, and let's just say it's something in health sciences or something that's engineering based, um, you got to think about, well, I could bring in a partner, right? Or I could hire someone and just pay them cash um, to kind of take care of that portion of it for me. But then you got to think about back to that partnership discussion, what value am I adding? Right. So if it's, let's say life sciences, they have some type of new, you know, product that they've developed. Are you able to, you know, take that product, brand it, sell it, market it, you know, um, put it through a distribution channel. What are you kind of adding to the table? Um, so that's part one is kind of doing it through others that you're bringing in. And then number two is if it's something that's easy enough or, you know, you can just work hard at it and become enough of an expert yourself to be dangerous. And it's probably like a combination of that where I, that I've personally done with, let's say, artificial intelligence, where, you know, I'm by no means, uh, you know, a developer that's writing AI code. Um, but I've talked to enough experts, um, read enough and, and took and taken some courses on it that I know enough to be dangerous uh, in that field um, as an entrepreneur. Yeah, Eric, I think that's so important. I mean, I, I think uh, partnerships where you completely separate off and have your own things are, you know, they're dangerous, right? You, you want to educate yourself to know enough about it that you can make informed decisions. You don't have to be the expert, but you should certainly know the, you know, the ground rules and uh, some, of the, some of the basics down there. Thinking about your younger self, what advice would you give to your younger self or maybe current Ivy students as they, you know, think about a, a, an entrepreneurial career? Yeah, I think there's a couple things. I think as a lot of uh, young people, I was going to say young men, but maybe young people, as probably, you know, overly confident, probably naive, you know, thought I had probably more answers um, than I did. And I think it's okay to not have all the answers and, and be more humble. And so I think that that was, that's absolutely a lesson. You know, one of my favorite quotes is Socrates, all I know is I know nothing. You know, you're always learning, always developing. And so, you know, I, I kind of wish that I thought about that more, you know, when I was, when I was starting out, I'll, I'll go back to, I'll go all the way back to Ivy for the second part. I really was focused on entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurship class, finance, um, these classes, and I didn't pay much attention to organizational behavior. So management behavior class. And lo and behold, what's the most important class <laughs> by far, it would be organizational behavior, right? Understanding people, structuring teams, understanding what motivates people, empathizing uh, with people, all these types of things that some of which you can learn in, in a class like that, and a lot of which you have to learn just by being 
you know, out in the world and through experience and through others uh, is just absolutely so important, you know, to get things done through other people uh, and develop those networks and relationships, unless you're a stock trader who, you know, can just sit at a computer and get everything done yourself or a very talented, you know, programmer, most, yeah. most people have to get things done through others. Um, and so it's that network. And then the last thing would be, uh, and I think I've been pretty good at this, but I would say connect people and give without wanting something in return. So I've consistently heard and been genuinely interested in what people are up to and what what motivates them. And I'll think, oh, I wonder if I know anyone, maybe I can help them, or maybe I know someone that could. And so I'll go out of my way expecting nothing in return, like genuinely um, to, to help them. And people remember that. Uh, and it kind of comes back to you. It's, it's kind of karma, but you're kind of laying a bunch of uh, seeds um, and, and just creating a good network of people and what goes around comes around. And that's ended up paying off uh, many times and also given me the opportunity uh, to invest um, and do quite well uh, in some of these cases where that wasn't the intent on the onset, but really provided opportunity. Yeah, I think uh, great advice all the way around uh, for sure, Eric. And it's, you know, it's amazing. I, I know you've been close to the school since you graduated. And so you've seen this progression, but you know, you go back to when you were here at Ivy and we had a couple of courses in entrepreneurship, but it was, you know, it was still way below kind of the consulting finance thing. And, you know, we're almost a third leg now with nine faculty members and, and lots of courses and, and activities beyond the classroom. And, uh, you know, thanks to you and, and alumni that have taken this path uh, for, for helping us get there. So uh, thanks so much. And I love the idea of, hey, you know, paying it forward and, and things do come around. So is there anything else that we haven't talked about that, that, that we should cover or that you'd like to leave uh, our audience with today? Maybe a couple things. Um, I think you should be passionate about whatever it is that you're doing. I don't think certainly not all of what you're going to do, you're going to love. You have to kind of do uh, some things that, that are hard work or tedious, um, you know, if it's being an entrepreneur or just being entrepreneurial. Um, but at the end of the day, um, when you're really trying to think about what you want to do long-term, it should be something that you really believe in. And I think the, where I've seen the most successful people is they'll focus more on, on that uh, than maybe uh, money and kind of the money will come. It sounds like a cliche, but I've, I've just found it to be true. Take real value and take real care of the network. You know, uh, I have, you know, some of the greatest joy that I have and also some of the best business that I've done is through the Ivy alumni network. I'm very close to my classmates. My roommate from Western is one of my best friends and we've done a bunch of deals together. And, and that just brings, um, you know, a lot of, uh, I'm very grateful for that, but it takes time. You know, life gets busy, you know, as, as you go, uh, kids and travel and, and whatever it is. But um, I think, I think that that's uh, really important. And then just really trying to stay true to your, your values and your morals, you know, having high integrity um, is really important. Uh, but the last one is have fun. You know, I think for, for me, COVID and a whole bunch of other stuff, stress over the last few years um, has really taught me, you know, life is short and, you know, what's the point of all of this uh, if, uh, if you're not going to enjoy it along the way. So take time to, to enjoy the, the journey if that's being an entrepreneur or, or whatever it is in the business world, um, you know, take time to, to have fun. I think it's really important to do that. Yeah, Eric, I think that's awesome. And just, you know, as I tie that up, I, I think the, the working hard piece is a, is, a, is a big part that we often overlook. And it's hard work, right? I mean, you're going to put it a lot of hours. And so having it something you're passionate about is, is clearly beneficial in that sense. Yeah, uh, because you want to have fun at this and it, and it should be a lot of fun. And 
Uh, you have fun through people. And I think you've really nailed that throughout our morning uh, today is how important the network and, and the people are that you work with. And I think that's such a good, great lesson to kind of live pe leave people with. So thanks so much for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next time. For more information on the Leadership in Practice podcast, visit ivyacademy.com slash blog. The Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Quantum Shift 2008 alum Connie Clarici and Closing the Gap Healthcare Group. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player or visit entrepreneurship.uwo.ca slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.